You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 23. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Chris Sims. On today's show, we talk to Dr. Christina Kilgrove about her use of 3D printed bones and other material. She's a professor in Florida, and she's having students 3D print osteological material and paint them to look like the real thing. We'll also talk about an osteology app and an app for rock art representation. Let's get to the show. Okay, welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast. With me, as always, is my co-host, Chris Sims. Chris? Hi. And we've got Dr. Christina Kilgrove on the line. Christina, how's it going? Great. Good. Why don't you tell the uh, audience just a little bit about yourself before we get into the exciting world of 3D prints and scans? Absolutely. I am a bioarchaeologist at the University of West Florida in the Department of Anthropology. So my research primarily focuses on using human skeletal remains from archaeological sites to try to answer questions about people in the past. And I've worked a lot in ancient Rome. And my current project, well, I have one current project in ancient Rome uh, and one in medieval Berlin as well. I also do a whole lot of public outreach and social media uh, through my blog at Forbes. Okay. And we'll have links to your blog and your Twitter handle in the show notes if anybody wants to go check those out. Um, So this is a technology podcast. We had, um, we'll also reference an episode that we had uh, Bernard Means on of the Virtual Curation Laboratory at... um, uh, Virginia Commonwealth University, and he talked all about what 3D printing and scanning is. So if you didn't hear that episode, maybe pause this one and go listen to that real quick, and then uh, and then come back because we're going to talk about the products of those devices and what what you can do with that. So what have you done lately um, in your research that uses 3D scans or 3D prints? Well, the current research that um, mostly my students are doing right now uh, is they are digitizing as many bones as possible from one individual. We have a whole bunch of medical skeletons, teaching skeletons, Mm -hmm. uh, and they're working on digitizing representative bones. And then they're going to make these very fancy PDFs that I'm not even sure how they're going to make them, but they promised me that this is <laughs> that this is doable. Um, they're going to make these really cool PDFs that they're going to annotate with information about each one of the bones so that students can download them and play with the 3D scans that are annotated at home and study at home, which is really wow. cool. And they are going to be presenting this um, at the American what is it, the American Association of Physical Anthropologists meeting in April. So they are currently working on that, which is really cool. Nice, nice. Um, have, you used, uh, have you used 3D scans at all for um, anything outside of like a teaching environment for any of your other projects? Let's see. I think it's mostly been teaching, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, also a little bit of preservation. So the uh, teeth from my project in medieval Berlin that I decided to drill into in order to take samples for isotope analysis, I figured I might as well 3D scan them first because we tend to take pictures before we destroy a sample um, in order to do <laughs> biochemical testing. Uh, but I figured I have a 3D scanner and you know some undergrads who are interested in 3D scanning, why don't I let them do it? So I do have uh, 3D scans of those in a sort of preservation sense, but mostly I've been using it for teaching. Okay. Yeah, we talked to um, when we talked to Bernard, he was uh, mentioning some interesting things regarding, say, um, like ceramics, like when they can 
Uh, I asked if they, you know, scan individual pieces and put pots back there. She's like, yeah, we can actually scan the pieces and then digitally put the pot back together and then print the complete pot. I imagine that would come handy for uh, osteological work as well. Yeah, well, we haven't done that with osteological work. Uh, we did do it with a pot. It's funny, of course, that you mentioned Bernard. He, <laughs> One of his undergraduates, Mariana Zucchini, um, came down to work with me for her master's degree. Um, and uh, she scanned a bunch of pieces of, um, I think it's an apple, no, wait. Now I can't remember. Some sort of prehistoric pot. I'm not good with the pottery. Mm-hmm. Um that she uh, scanned uh, individual pieces of because the archaeologists didn't want to reconstruct it. They wanted to do some testing on it. Um, and then she digitally reconstructed it and printed it out. Um, and so I brought that to a faculty meeting one day and just sort of tossed it on the table. And all the archaeologists went, <laughs> <laughs> and went <laughs> it was it, it looked pretty good because she had 3D printed it and painted it and everything wow. to look like the original. So that was really nice. Wow. Are your students encountering any... Uh... Any, any challenges to the scanning process or, or to what they're doing? Or are they, you know, kind of a trial and error on how best to scan some of these bones? Yeah, it, it is definitely mostly trial and error. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the sort of smaller bones, you know, if they're not too small, um, they scan pretty well. Uh, if they're very small, like little tiny carpal bones in your hands, it can be difficult to scan those just because mm-hmm. they're so small and, you know, the, the sort of the things that you can see or feel when it's a real bone, they don't really come out very well in the, in the 3D printing. Um, and if they're too large, it's difficult as well. We have a tabletop 3D scanner. Um, and so they just recently scanned a tibia, um, one of the lower leg bones, and they had to scan it in two pieces and mm-hmm. then sort of mush it together and, um, in order to create a a full one. Um, so we do, we do have a handheld scanner as well, um, that you can use for larger things, but it doesn't have really as good resolution. It's a little bit more difficult to use. So those, those are difficult. Also teeth can be very difficult. I did, um, as I mentioned, I did scan some of those, um, but they can be really shiny and therefore mm-hmm. difficult to scan. Uh, so sometimes you have to coat them with something. You can, you can coat them with like white hairspray and other sorts of things so that they're not so reflective and you can scan them. But obviously I didn't, I didn't do that since I was trying to do testing on them. <laughs> I didn't right. want them to come out really strange with, you know, the hairspray on them. Yeah. Nice. I was wondering, we, this is another thing we talked to Bernard about. I want your opinion on this. Um, mm-hmm. we, we talked about, uh, you know, there's a lot of delicate issues when it comes to human remains, um, especially not so long dead human remains and, you know, people with existing um, like ancestors and like Native American stuff here in this country, for example. Um, have you encountered or, or discussed with your students at all uh, any of the, the questions that might arise from scanning uh, human remains? We're really only sort of starting to think about this. Um, and it's something I've been talking with Gwen Robin Shug about a little bit, um, the sort of ethics behind things, because she's scanning a whole bunch of um, uh, infant and fetal remains. Um, but I mean, as far as I know, there's nothing really in the literature mm-hmm. about this yet, because it's such a, a growing field. And I mean, for me, you know, we've mostly been scanning medical skeletons, teaching skeletons, so there aren't really ethics involved there. I've never done anything with um, scanning Native American skeletons, although I've talked to people at the Smithsonian who say, you know, as long as you 
talk to um, the sort of living descendants, you know, there, there's potential there um, to do that sort of thing. And they've been doing some like 3D scanning and printing of artifacts uh, with the consent of the, of the tribe. Um, but yeah, so I haven't, uh, I mean, other than the, the sort of archeological material that I work with, which I have scanned a little bit of, but I'm not allowed to share yet because um, the publications haven't come out. Uh, mm-hmm. from the site, you know, so I mean, there are all sorts of different levels of ethics, I suppose, that that we are honestly just still trying to figure out. As far as the uh, resolution, uh, have you encountered, um, are they fine-grained enough that you can see like taphonomic processes on any of the bones? Uh, it depends on the particular taphonomic process. I mean, if you're talking about, you know, a bone that's just been broken, sure, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's enough resolution there. Yeah. Um, but you're not going to see, you know, sort of like roots growing on top of a skull. It's not going to be, mm. you know, terribly fine grained, um, at least in terms of the printing, this, the scanning is a little bit better. 3d scanning, um, it, it is a lot better than 3d printing at this point. Um, 3d printing is like, it, it's not even as good as a dot matrix printer was, you know, in the mm-hmm. 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> well, nice. that's a good comparison. Uh, <laughs> So as far as the scanning goes, uh, do you see like the state of the technology as it stands now? Is it good enough to kind of like enhance uh, bioarchaeological analysis for like, I don't know, cut marks or disease or anything like that? Or does it still have a long way to go? Um, honestly, I think it still has a long way to go in order to do something like that. Uh, I think most researchers are still using uh, stuff like scanning electron microscopy in order to um, enhance, you know, say really subtle cut marks. I don't, I don't think the 3D scanning is quite there yet, but it could just be that my 3D scanner isn't good enough <laughs> and that somebody somewhere has a really fancy 3D scanner. Yeah, I think stuff like that, it does come down to cost sometimes. Um, you know, they, there are some really high quality 3D scanners and high quality 3D printers out there, but they're, you know, still in the thousands and thousands of dollar range, probably. Right, probably. I mean, it, 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 it's amazing how, how honestly, how cheap it is these days to get a 3D mm-hmm. scanner and a 3D printer. Um, when I was in graduate school, uh, my husband's department, he was in a computer science department, they had this 3D printer and it was, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. And for the exact same thing that I just bought a couple of years ago for $2,000. Um, right. So the cost has come down dramatically, but I don't think the, the quality of 3D printing has gone up that much. <laughs> um, yeah. It just hasn't kept pace yet. Yeah, you can get uh, some of the some of the cheaper desktop models now for like three hundred bucks. Uh, the resolution's probably not good enough for what you're doing, but still, mm-hmm. you know, still a step in the right direction. Um, and and I think the I think the the older ones, I think they should actually add a sound or the lower quality ones that actually sound like a dot matrix printer, just so people know what they're getting into. You know, they kind just... of do at the end when it, when it finishes <laughs> printing. It kind of goes do 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 do. It's it's pretty awesome. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. We'll start seeing noise bands playing with uh, 3D printers. Um, (laughs) Great. So as far as the teaching aspect, it sounds like it's been a pretty helpful tool for your students. How has it changed things on their end? Yeah, well, I... (laughs) They like it when I bring in 3D prints, especially if I let them keep them. <laughs> they get very <laughs> excited if I let them keep like a printout of a carpool or something. Um, but I I was also able to print some hominin skulls and little mm. pieces. Um, the, the newly announced 
um, or fairly newly announced hominin species, uh, Homo naledi. I was able to print that out, you know, within a day of its announcement nice. and bring wow. that to class. And so, you know, some of my students totally geeked out on it with me and the other ones didn't really care. <laughs> That's kind of how it always is. Um, and so I, you know, I, 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 we're also able to print out um, pathological bones, um, you know, bones that have fused or, you know, bones that have like evidence of leprosy or sort of random things that we don't have in our collection. I can print out and show those to the students and they think they're they think they're pretty cool. Um, not quite as cool as being able to see it, you know, in person on a bone, but still very useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have they been using it to study and have you noticed anything, any changes in like, uh, their grades or, you know, the kinds of, or like, I guess the quality of, of, uh, work that they're giving to you? I haven't seen any improvement. Uh, <laughs> I wish I could say that I have, but it's awesome. Um, but I mean, I also don't, you know, distribute huge amounts of bones to them or anything. So gotcha. I think, you know, they don't have them at home um, to study from. Uh, they do have one in the library. I put a, a plastic skeleton on reserve in the library so that they can check them out from the front desk, <laughs> like take them to, you know, a little room in the library and put them out on the table, um, which is kind of cool. But uh, yeah, I, they're, they're sort of still interested as a, more as a curiosity than as a study tool. And that's why we're hoping that um, this project that the students are working on for the AAPAs in, in April will really actually be, you know, is designed as a study tool um, that, that I'll hope to deploy in a future semester. I, I was just thinking when you were saying uh, as a as a study tool, it'll be cool one day when, as a test or something, you can just assign the the raw data for three D scans, and they just print them out on their home three D printers, you know, and go study their little things and stuff like that. I don't think that's really too far off, quite honestly. No, I don't think so. It's just you know, there's a little bit of materials cost too. Yeah. You know, sometimes the I don't know our three D printer clogs a lot and doesn't print out very large things very easily. Mm-hmm. So printing out a skull would be kind of difficult, but you know, printing out finger bones and stuff, that'd be pretty cool. They could do that and study from them. Yeah. I had a thought the other day about 3d printing. I, I was thinking somehow the, um, the recycling industry needs to get on board with this and create a 3d printer where you just toss in your old plastic bottles and plastic material inside the 3d printer and it melts it down and creates the raw material for stuff for you to print out. You know, yeah, that'd be, that'd be uh, cool. I, I think there are a variety of people who are, are trying to get stuff like that off the mm-hmm. ground. And, you know, recycling of the extra little bits of plastic, too. Like if you print something out and it doesn't quite work, you know, to sort of melt that down and feed it back in. And mm-hmm. so there are all these, you know, like off market types of things that you can buy or build yourself. But I haven't I haven't gotten into that yet. Right. Right. You know, I was thinking um, when you were talking about the uh, Homo uh, Naledi which, correct me if I'm wrong, that was the one found in the uh, deep inside the cave down in South Africa, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, I was wondering, I don't, I don't think we're here quite yet, um, but it seems like it, this is right around the corner. Um, or if you, if you know anybody talking about this or actually doing this, I was thinking, you know, handheld 3D scanners in the field, you know, you could excavate something and pretty much scan it right away and have that shipped off to, say, experts that can't make it to 
South, South Africa or wherever you're working, and uh, they can either print it out or look at the scans, you know, at their leisure, and then and then give an opinion on on what these people are finding in the field, rather than waiting sometimes uh, right. sometimes years for a paper to come out or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, do you know of anybody kind of trying to approach that sort of thing yet? Um, I mean, I'm not with the with the Homo Naledi, um discovery. I I know they they had started 3D scanning essentially immediately. I don't know if they were mm-hmm. doing it in the field, um, in that tiny little cave, um, <laughs> right? <laughs> or if, you know, they they did the 3D scanning once it once it was recovered. But um, so many archaeological sites these days and archaeological projects um, are using things like 3D photogrammetry. Um, the site that I work at in in Italy at Gabi. Um, we have 3d photogrammetry of like the entire site essentially. And, and so I can, if I wanted to, I guess I could 3d print the graves, <laughs> um, just from the, the, the photos sort of converting them into a printable file. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm assuming that, that many people are using technology along the lines of what you're talking about now. Um, but we're just not sort of hearing about it at a large scale yet. So where do you see the future of this technology or where would you like to see the future of this as uh, as applies to your field? I want to be able to print bones in chocolate <laughs> so I can eat them. No. Uh, nice. <laughs> I don't know. I, I really, I got into this because I thought it was really cool to 3D print things. <laughs> and um, so I don't, the, oh, there goes the baby. <laughs> um, yeah, there you go. I don't. I don't really know sort of what the what the future holds. It'll be neat to see when 3D prints get better. Um, and also there's, I mean, there's so much happening in, happening in anatomy where people are like 3D printing from like stem cells and stuff to grow new organs. I mean, wow. how cool would that be if I could like grow my own bone to study from? Mm-hmm. That would be amazing. But that just seems like such sci-fi weirdness at this point. <laughs> Nice. Well, I got to say, if you do ever get a bone printed in chocolate, that yeah. I think your Twitter picture or something like that should change to you stirring a cup of hot chocolate with like a rib with an evil look in your eye. <laughs> that would be awesome. It would have to be white chocolate, though, you know? Just yeah, yeah, to look of course. Realistic. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, white chocolate. Yeah. I mean, we're not, you know, we're not crazy here. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to take a short break uh, to advertise one of the other shows on the Fantastic Archaeology Podcast Network, and then we'll come back and ask you about some other technology you're using in the lab there. The CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Podcast. Let's get back to the show. Okay, we're back. And uh, so I want to shift gears a little bit and just ask you um, what other sorts of, I mean, this is a technology podcast. So what other sorts of, what other sorts of high tech stuff are you guys using uh, in your lab or stuff you might even not consider high tech, but uh, technology that you're using in your lab to do your work? Right. Um, 
one of the interesting things we did last semester was sort of a sideline student project. Um, I've always wanted to use the portable XRF that we got mm. like a year ago, and I never really had anything to do with it. Like, uh, you know, what am I going to shoot at? Um, but I guess our maritime archaeologists got it because they recover a lot of stuff from the sea and want to know, you know, sort of what metals make up this thing that they just brought up. Um, so they got a portable XRF. Um, so I was able to borrow it last semester um, along with a grad student. Um, we uh, used it on some Roman bones that I had brought from Italy uh, because in Imperial Rome, obviously there's a, a sort of idea that people had lead poisoning and there was like lead everywhere. Um, and so three of, the, three of the burials that I had been working with were in lead. So, you know, we generated this very simple hypothesis that said, um, <clears throat> you know, the, the individuals who were buried in lead, their bones will have a higher lead content you know, from the PSRF. Um, but we were actually, you know, we were able to confirm that, which doesn't necessarily mean that those people were ingesting lead. It might be, you know, taphonomic that, right. that the lead that they had been buried in sort of seeped into their bones over 2000 years. But it was really just sort of a test of the PXRF and so that I could get to play with it because I thought it would be fun um, to test the bones for lead. So that's that's a that's a really fun technology um, that we have floating around. Real quick. So XRF, for those that don't know, is X-ray fluorescence. And um, that uh, just, again, for people that don't know, we might put a link to this in the show notes. Um, that basically just when you shoot it at something, you point it and pull the trigger, it tells you what elements comprise that object, right? Yep. Right. It's, it's kind of like a fancy spectrometer, kind of really, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of neat. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I've never used one, but they sound pretty, uh, pretty interesting. I never even thought about pointing it at at uh, at bones. That's mm -hmm. yeah, that's really cool. Because I'd I'd heard that when I visited Pompeii like twenty years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, they like to show you all the lead pipes and say, "Yep, this is uh, probably contributed to some some early demise amongst the uh, the people that could afford the lead pipes." <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, so, all right. Well, what else are you guys using in there um, that uh, that you're using in your lab? Oh gosh, um, I don't I don't have anything else fancy. Unfortunately, I've got <laughs> the, you know the 3D scanner and the 3D printer and. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm trying, I, I hope, fingers crossed, at some point to set up um, an isotope prep lab because uh, we don't have a prep lab at UWF. And so I'm going in just a few weeks to Georgia State to learn how to set up an isotope lab uh, and prep bone samples for light isotopes like carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen. Um, so I hope that, you know, within the next couple of years, I'll have an isotope prep lab and that will be super fancy. Cool. And what can you tell from those, uh, from that isotope analysis? The carbon and nitrogen will give you information about diet, um, a person's past diet, uh, and oxygen can give you information about where they came from, uh, sort of the, you know, the water uh, where they, the water that they drank where they lived growing up. Um, and so I've done a bunch of uh, carbon and nitrogen to understand paleo diet from ancient Rome. We are going to be doing a large scale study um, from medieval Berlin, uh, sort of pre and post Black Death to see if diet changed prior to the Black Death and after the Black Death, um, especially for women, because women were moving into more and more into occupations after the Black Death, after a whole bunch of men died and they had to go to work. Um, <laughs> our hypothesis is that that their diets changed considerably um, following the Black Death. Uh, so that's what that's what we're doing with carbon and nitrogen isotopes. 
Very cool. So with all these technologies that you're using on the research end of it, have you been seeing any changes in the way you're using technology on the presentation or like on the teaching end of it? Oh, that's a good question. I I primarily use, you know, straight up PowerPoint in teaching. Um, uh, I have brought in, you know, 3D models just on the computer to show students, um, uh, especially ones you can embed in slides to sort of, you know, that you can rotate it um, around. But I mean, my, my classes tend to be fairly hands-on in general. I make my students do things like model bones out of Play-Doh. Um, so, I mean, it's sort of the opposite of high tech, right? Yeah. <laughs> sort of get them back to basics, like draw this bone, make this one out of Play-Doh. Um, so I, you know, I think there's, there's a balance, there's a balance between incredibly high tech that sometimes scares students and sort of bringing them back to, you know, elementary school where they like playing with Play-Doh and drawing things. Um, yeah. so it's a nice balance. Yeah. I think that's a really good point you just made there about the balance of, of high tech and low tech and, uh. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned your colleague, Gwen Robin Shug. Uh, she was one of my professors when I was in undergrad at Appalachian State. And mm-hmm. uh, I had her forensic taphonomy class. And so we were always fighting over the time in the lab. And it was basically like, mm-hmm. who could sacrifice more of their own time to get into the lab and like look at the bones <laughs> and stuff? Because mm-hmm. you can only learn so much from a book, I guess. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I think... Um... I think that's probably it for this discussion. Uh, if you guys, I'd be really interested to hear um, any other thing, any other things you guys do with uh, the 3D printing and scanning aspect, because that's a that's a hot topic these days, and it's a constantly changing, um, constantly changing space. Really, uh, every year there's newer, newer, better, faster, you know, more accurate uh, 3D printers and scanners, for that matter. And I think. I think I'm really interested in the field applications of this stuff. I mean, obviously the labs have some some pretty high applications, but the field applications seem to me like um, like we can we can possibly not only get results from things quicker and answers quicker uh, about different things, um, you know, less of a time involved in in that delay, but also possibly even some circumstances where things can just be scanned in the field and then you know reburied in some cases immediately without leaving them, you know, out of context for too long, if that's a concern for, uh, for whomever's there. So if you guys ever break some new ground on that, let us know and we'll have you back on. Absolutely. So we're going to go, we're going to go to another break and then, uh, Chris and I'll come back for our app of the day slash, uh, week slash twice a month segment. (laughs) All these things we make, no apology the study of archaeology but we don't do dinosaurs did aliens build stonehenge did the easter island statues walk did the vikings colonize midwest america what does mainstream archaeology have to say about all of this listen to the archaeological fantasies podcast and learn about popular archaeological mysteries hoax or fact learn to tell the difference with dr kenneth fader and co-host sarah of the archie fantasies blog Check out the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Archie Fantasies and get ready to think critically. Let's get back to the show. Funny beady blokes you will see are a staple of archaeology. All right, we're back for our final segment of the day, and uh, this is where Chris and I talk about uh, a couple of apps that we're playing around with right now and want to review. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad, sometimes they're really bad, and uh, 
let's do that right now. Chris, you're going to go first and tell us about um, an app that's actually on point with our discussion today a little bit. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, I feel like we played this good cop, bad cop thing where I'm, I'm always the <laughs> one that trashes an app. Um, I'm trying to be positive, I promise. But uh, So I'm looking at uh, Netter's Anatomy Atlas. And uh, I've got the free version uh, just for reference, and I'll, I'll talk about the full version in a moment. So I was checking this out. It has the different systems of the body, um, and the free version is a pared-down uh, version of the full anatomy atlas. And uh, my thinking was, let's check this thing out and say if I'm in undergrad or doing some osteology research, uh, what information can I get from the human skeletal system? So I'm in here looking at the different plates and it's the free version has all of the bones of the skull and all of the features and processes. And if you're taking a quiz or just trying to figure out what's going on with a skull, it'll help you out a lot there. But beyond that, uh, you're not going to be able to pass your first quiz in your class or really be able to look at the rest of the skeleton. Um, there's not much detail. Now, the full version of Netter's Anatomy Atlas uh, is through Elsevier, and uh, it costs $90. And hmm. I haven't checked out the full version. Uh, I'm not going to, but uh, <laughs> it's highly recommended on several blogs for one of the best apps for the sciences. So... Um, I guess you can take their word for it. If you're a student and your professor recommends this app, then check it out. Otherwise, don't waste your time on it. Um, and if you're an academic, chances are you already have reference guides, so I don't know how helpful this will be. But I do like the idea of having a handy reference guide in uh, like a tablet or a mobile device uh, because it just has you know more references at your fingertips out in the field and it makes you more versatile on the go. So it'll be neat to see these kinds of things, uh, maybe drop in price. Maybe we can see some more open access involvement in the tablet world. Um, but I don't know. The Like I said, the free version, maybe pass on this one. You know, it's got uh, the paid version also has in-app purchases, which I think is a little ridiculous for a $90 application. Uh, yeah. And one of these here, I can't read the whole thing because it won't it won't print. Oh, there you go. It says upgrade to the sixth edition for forty five ninety nine. So you download the ninety dollar version, and if you want the current version, <laughs> you pay another forty six dollars. Wow. So, uh, for anybody that's not familiar with Elsevier, that's um, that sounds about yeah, right. That's par for the course yeah. for Elsevier. Yeah, they uh, they're big into journals and uh, and making you pay for it. So. Um, I do like, however, that they had to put on here uh, on the iTunes page because it's anatomy, obviously. So they had to put infrequent slash mild sexual content and nudity as a disclaimer. <laughs> wow, Apple. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a little misleading for somebody, you know, that doesn't want to download something that might be, you know, sexual content. Of course, there's sexual content and nudity. It's an anatomy. Yeah, app. Right. All right. Yeah. Nice. That's awesome. All right. So check that out if you're if you're hardcore into osteology. Um, I could see applications for this. The iPad app looks kind of fantastic on the paid one. And if it's something you can have in the lab with you and you've got your iPad in a, um, in a, in a protective case or something like that so you can spill stuff on it and do whatever you want. I don't know what you're going to spill in an osteology lab. That sounds gross. But either way, um, 
you know, you can do stuff like that rather than having your textbook in there. If you're, if you're doing stuff, you know, you can, um, you can have that in there with you. I mean, hell, put it in a life proof case and go and do a, do an autopsy with this sitting right there. You know, that actually don't do that. I just, I just told people to go do autopsies. So don't do that. Um, (laughs) all right, well, let's move on to another application, um, that I actually just heard about last week. And this has nothing to do with osteology, uh, unless people are drawing bones on rocks. So this app is called DeStretch. I DeStretch actually, because it's an it's a you know an iPhone and iPad application. So of course you put a little lowercase i next to it, and that makes it that. Um, but DeStretch has been around for a little while. If you look at the website at DeStretch.com, it looks like DeStretch has been around since 1985 when uh, people were making websites that look like this. Uh, Mr. John Harmon, a fantastic archaeologist, and wrote the DeStretch plugin. Um, I don't know if he designed this website or not, but it really needs a it really needs an upgrade. Upgrade. But the website aside, the DeStretch application is simply amazing. Um, in its in its basic function, really, what DeStretch does is you take a picture of rock art with. Um, and in the past, you had to take a picture with a camera, upload it to your computer, a Windows computer, and then go to the you know have the DeStretch. Um, plug in on your Windows computer, and then you could, you basically, um, and I think anybody who's taken pictures of rock art has probably done this on their own computers with their own photo software, but you like make the image a negative or you change the colors around to try to enhance certain things that you're seeing in the rock art. Well, DeStretch does that in a way that's, um, they have a bunch of different enhancements that you can do that are basically just programmed in set, I guess, thumbnails, for lack of a better word, presets, really for these different enhancements that have been proven to work on rock art. So you don't have to mess around with all these different sliders and things like that. And I mean, when it, when it works, it really works on pictographs. Well, not necessarily, um, petroglyphs because it, it helps to have the, uh, the pigment on the rock. And then you, you know, if you got the right kind of lighting and stuff like that, you can, you can sometimes bring out stuff that, that you just couldn't see before, um, before you applied the correction to it, because it's, using a different filter to look at a different wavelength of light that maybe your camera naturally can't see and your eye can't even see. So, but it's there, it's there and it's coming through, but you just have to enhance it with DeStretch. So like I said before, you had to go out to a site and take all your pictures and then come back and apply DeStretch to them if you were going to do that. And you probably will if you're using, uh, if you're looking at pictographs. But now they have an iPhone and iPad application. It's $19.99, which seems a little steep for something that just changes your sliders. But that being said, these people are not going to make a million dollars on this. There's probably, you know, a hundred people that will use this application religiously and others that might just download it and use it occasionally. But um, I'm willing to pay, and I did pay $20 for this just to play around with it on my iPhone. And I didn't even have to go out and take pictures of rock art. I I used some pictures that I already had on my phone of some rock art and some pictographs and just dropped them into the DeStretch app. You don't have to take the picture in there and then apply the DeStretch algorithms to it. And it's just, I mean... It's kind of amazing that you can't see that stuff normally, and it just it just makes stuff pop, and you almost think that it's unreal. So, wow, yeah, it's uh it's pretty fantastic. Um, check out the destretch.com page. Uh, there's a a little link on the left, kind of on the left side, where it'll take you to the to the iTunes page, or you can just look up destretch on iTunes. Um, they clearly didn't write this for Android yet, uh, and you know. Chris, we're gonna to have to start reviewing apps that you can actually look at on Android as well, because we seem pretty uh, pretty Apple heavy on the <laughs> on the apps, and I'm kind of surprised we haven't had a comment yet. Yeah, 
anyway, uh, it's a pretty fantastic app if you're if you're at all interested in rock art um, or you're working with rock art or you might think you might work with rock art. It be it would behoove you to have the D stretch app in the field with you, yeah. so you can so you can really see some stuff. So, Chris, I've got a question about the D stretch app. So, uh, it'll alter colors. What if you have, say, like a faint carving or something uh, that doesn't really have a color difference? Uh, will it be able to detect that? You know, the short answer is probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but it just depends. There's there's a lot of weird things that come out when you apply D-Stretch to, um, to non-pigmented rock art. It really works on pigment well. Um, and that's why I said pictographs. But on petroglyphs, it can bring stuff out. And sometimes that's just because of the way the lighting, when you shot it, um, maybe the lighting was a little weird or or not quite optimal. And the D-Stretch algorithms are changing things enough that it kind of changes the lighting. It doesn't actually change the lighting, but it looks like it kind of does. And then you can maybe pick out some extra detail that you didn't see before. But it's not it's not really designed for, um, for uh, petroglyphs. So that's to say, you know, Feel free to try it, but you're probably not going to get as good of results as you would with pictographs. So, yeah. um, which is really what it's designed for. So, man, yeah, it's worth the twenty bucks if you're, you know, if you, especially if you're an archaeologist or or you just want to see some cool things. And you know, the hard thing is pictographs can be hard to find. Pet- petroglyphs are everywhere um, out in the West here. You know, they're they're almost literally all over the place. Uh, but pictographs are a little more difficult to find. That being said, I would apply D-Stretch to some, to some extensive petroglyph panels just to see if there once was pigment there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because even if there's a, a faint hint of it, sometimes D-Stretch will pull that out uh, if it's the right color and wavelength for the, for the camera to, to see it, but you can't see it. Um, so it'd be, worth, it'd be worth applying to some petroglyphs just to see if something was there that was, you know, destroyed or, or done over the top of the current petroglyphs or something like that. So that, that could be useful. Um, yeah. I think this is really cool because archaeologists and art historians are constantly finding some new detail or some new pictograph. Um, I think recently there was some new revelations on the uh, Chauvet cave hmm. um, uh, pictographs. Uh, they are saying something about how uh, they're thinking now it depicts a uh, volcanic eruption. Oh. But, uh, yeah, I think that's really cool. And there's so much cave archaeology to be done, and it's such a difficult field that this is just one more tool to kind of enhance that. And, you know, the the fun thing about this, too, is uh, with that now that this is an application, you could probably do this on Windows machines before. I don't really know because I didn't, I didn't use it then. But... Um, one of the cool things, especially like Chauvet um, or or, um, or some of the or Lasco or you know some of the other famous sites, D Stretch is kind of a California thing. You know, there are people that have come to California and heard about John Harmon and heard about D Stretch or maybe heard him at a conference or something like that. But it's kind of like I don't think their advertising is that good. You know, you've got to be yeah. like in the business and reading the journals and reading the papers that these that he's published about using D-Stretch to kind of know about it. Um, so I don't think this has been applied on some of the big famous sites around the world. The nice thing about this being an application now is, and I might try this after we get done here, because I just you just made me think about it, is maybe go find some some internet pictures of some of this famous cave art, because it doesn't need to be a, a fancy picture, just something off the yeah. internet, and then d- drop it into the D-Stretch app. You don't, you know, you can just pull up your photo, your camera roll, drop it into the D-Stretch app and apply the algorithms to it and see if anything shows up. You might, uh, yeah, you might make a discovery. So, <laughs> <laughs> who knows? That's very cool. 
All right. Well, I think that's it for this week. Um, not sure what fantastic things we have on Slate for next week, but I'm sure it'll be awesome. So, um, And I say week, but I mean two weeks. You'll just have to understand that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think, Chris, next time you'll be in uh, you'll be in New Zealand when we record next time, won't you? Yeah, I think this might be the last time uh, I get a podcast in the States. Nice, nice, nice. All right. Well, that'll be... That'll be interesting, and maybe we can, um, you know, once you get settled in over there, we can we can talk about some some New Zealand technology because I think they're using the wheel by now over there, aren't they? They're uh... yeah. Well, you know, because of Coriolis <laughs> effect and all that, all the apps are like upside down and backwards. Oh right, so yeah, of course. <laughs> it's gonna take a little translating. Nice, nice. All right. Well, we'll we'll let you sort through that and give us a report on <laughs> New Zealand technology when we when we go next time. All right. I think your girlfriend just stopped listening to the podcast. Um, <laughs> so, all right. Well, that's it for this week. Um, see you later, Chris. Next time we talk, we'll be in New Zealand. All righty. Bye. That's it for another episode of the Archaeotech Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for this episode. You can also email us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag archaeotech or tag at archpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to this show wherever you saw it. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. So speaking of cave archaeology, uh, I think it was nine years ago or so, I was working in Belize and there was... One of the Maya archaeologists there had been working on some some cave stuff, and he had this idea that there were um, these carvings in the walls that depicted, you know, various mythological figures. And some of his colleagues, you know, were saying, "Dude, you're crazy. You know, you've been smoking too much weed in the cave." And he was like, "No, no, no. It's it's seriously. I, I think it's there." And you know, to backtrack, there's. It, during the time that the Maya were using it, they would have been on hallucinogens and carrying a torch. And so he, you know, told this very fanciful tale of, you know, what it must have been like to be in a cave about to sacrifice somebody tripped out of your mind. And so he said, if anybody can get a picture of this thing, I'll give you a whole bottle of rum. And so I had my DSLR camera with me and a tripod and I was like, all right, dude, take me out to the cave. And so, uh, we went out to the cave and I did a ton of, uh, long exposure shots. And some of them were, you know, many, many seconds long and we were playing around with light and I got a bunch of really cool stuff. And it was like this, uh, like jester figure that had been 
carved into the wall that was like barely detectable from all of the cave formations that had kind of slowly covered it over and all that. It was just so faint. But in the end, I came out with a 750 milliliter bottle of rum. So <laughs> nice. Yeah. So if, if you want to download a uh, D stretch for $20 and you can convince an archeologist to buy you a bottle of rum, it'll pay for the app. Nice. That's perfect. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info.